Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. Our goal is to help Christians understand the truth of Romans 15:14 that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm one of your hosts, Curtis Solomon. And I'm Lincoln Liu, your other host. Be sure to check out other resources from the BCC at biblicalcc.org. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 1514. It's a delight to have you as part of our audience. Today's episode is one in our Getting to Know You series, getting to know different leaders in the biblical counseling movement on a, on a more personal level. This is one that I was excited to do because this person is somebody I've known for quite some time, been really blessed by both he and his wife, uh, Dr. Robert Chong and Karen Chong, who are co-founders of Gospel Care Ministries. Uh, my only regret is that Karen didn't join us for the episode. I'll have to have her on again sometime and, and hear her side of their story. But this was a, a getting to know you, so we got to hear about Dr. Robert Chong's upbringing before he was a doctor. Uh, how he came to Saving Faith, how he got into biblical counseling, and just some other things that he's learned throughout the years related to that. Uh, I was also excited that we got to do an after-show interview with, with Robert. He was able to hang out with us for a little bit. Those after-shows are benefits for BCC partnerships, so if you want to find out more about that, just go to the BCC's website, click on the Donate tab, and then read about what it means to be a BCC partner. And if you do that, you can log into our BCC partner portal and access extra benefits for BCC partners, including the after-shows like the one that we recorded in today's episode. Uh, I hope you are encouraged by what you hear and inspired to go forward in the ministry that God has called you to. Thanks for listening. This season of 1514 is brought to you in part by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Boyce College. A lifetime of faithfulness in counseling, preaching, teaching, and discipling begins with an education that is trusted for truth. Southern Seminary and Boyce College offer undergraduate, master's level, and doctoral degrees in biblical counseling that you can trust to be scripturally grounded and life-transforming. The aim of our program at Boyce College is to prepare graduates to serve in counseling ministries and to position them for graduate-level training in biblical counseling. If your next step in counseling is earning a master's or doctoral degree, Southern Seminary equips our graduates fully online or on campus to counsel God's Word faithfully and skillfully in both individuals and families. To learn more about an undergraduate biblical counseling degree, go to boycecollege.com slash 1514. That's boycecollege.com slash 1514. For more information about graduate-level credentials, the web address is sbts.edu slash 1514. You will also find direct links to these degree programs in the show notes of today's 1514 episode. Thanks so much for listening. All right, Robert Chong, thank you so much for joining us for 1514. Could you introduce yourself to our audience? Thanks for having me, Curtis. Uh, Robert Chong, I've been married. We just celebrated 40 years of marriage, so we're super excited about the the privilege that it's been. Uh, We have three grown children, and two of them are married, and we have five grandchildren. And uh, we have been living in Louisville since 1995, since seminary. We thought we were only going to be here for three years. (laughs) Still here. That's great. So tell us about your upbringing. What was what was life like for you as a kid, and what were you like as a kid? 
Yeah, I was pretty boring as a kid. <laughs> uh, my parents would always tell me, stop, stop looking at TV. You're laying down too much and watching TV. Um, but once I uh, got into high school, I was involved in junior ROTC. I was Army. How about that, Curtis? Hey, um, I mean, you moved around a bit then, so. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, what? What if you think, if I think about the childhood memories, I would say being um, active, spending time on the intercoastal waterways. Hmm. Spent time skiing and fishing, not fishing, but shrimping and crabbing. And it was so funny because it wasn't until I left Savannah that I realized you actually have to buy shrimp in a grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> we had so much shrimp in the summertime and we would freeze it. We never had to buy shrimp. Wow. That's awesome. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about your college years? Where did you go and what did you study? Yeah, that's a funny story. I, I I applied to West Point because I went to Army Junior RTC. So uh, West Point was the obvious choice, but I didn't get accepted there. I was the first alternate, but I also got first alternate at the Naval Academy. And so the congressman switched me over and I ended up going to the Naval Academy. And um, and so that was a really good experience. But my thought was I was only going to spend two years there because I was going to spend uh, my latter years going to the University of Georgia and become a dentist. And so uh, it was between my sophomore and junior year because you have to make a decision. And they would say the first time you step into the classroom in your junior year, you're committed for your junior senior year and five years of military duty. And so everybody's under pressure during that sophomore summer. And I was actually on a submarine for five days and just really reflecting on the opportunities that I already had and the opportunities that I was going to have. And I recognized that, you know what, two more years of free education would be really good, but five years of active duty service um, would pass by quickly and I could get out of the Navy and, at 27 years old. And that's what I decided to do. Uh, so um, the Naval Academy, we called that the uncollege because it was not <laughs> your typical college experience. Uh, we couldn't even listen to music in our room until our oh, sophomore wow. year. And yeah. we couldn't even drive a car on campus until our junior year. And, you know, real quick uh, detail, during our freshman year, the only time off that we had was from lunchtime to dinner time, and then dinner time to 11 o'clock on Saturday, and that was it. The rest wow. of the time, we were in the yard on the campus. All the parents are starting to look into the military academies as you're as you're speaking right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I still would have preferred the Air Force Academy for you, but you know, sanctification is uh, a process. So, <laughs> yeah, our, uh, our, our uh, slang for the Air Force Academy was the country club. Hey, because, you know, the, if the yeah, shoe fits. You go on the campus, is a long driveway, and as you're driving down the driveway to the Air Force Academy, you see all these planes, gliders, and prop planes flying over you. And then all of the, you go into the dormitories and all this wooden walls, you know, it would look plush compared to the Naval Academy. And so that's why we call it the country club. Yeah. I, yeah, I studied mechanical engineering um, at the Academy and like had six semesters of math. And um, and so that was a rigorous time for me. But I think that's where the Lord helped me to develop an analytical mind mm -hmm. um, because um, I've been able to use that in ministry in ways that um, has benefited the development of, of what I'm working on. So, 
Yeah, it's not not something that you always see a direct correlation to biblical counseling, but I I know having gotten to know you over the years, uh, I can definitely see that and definitely appreciate that and looking forward to hearing some more. So tell us somewhere along the way, uh, you met Jesus. So tell us about that. How did you become part of the family of God? Well, when I was 18 years old, my best friend in high school, his name was Steve, we were hanging on this room and he asked me the typical evangelist questions. You know, when you, if you were to die, where would you go? And I gave him the typical answers. You know, I said, Hey, I, I never killed anybody. So I guess I'll go to heaven. And so, you know, he kind of shook his head. No, very politely and told me um, the way to heaven. And I asked him afterwards, so why did you, why did you ask me those questions? And he says, well, our church has a campaign and we needed to share the gospel X number of times. And I told him, I'm just a number fool. And so later, the next year, after my first year at the academy, I got a slot at um, Fort Benning, Georgia for jump school, airborne school. And so I'm with a guy, a friend of mine from the academy, and his name was Greg. And I knew he was with some Christian organization called the Navigators. Mm -hmm. And I had no clue who the Navigators were, but we had just finished two weeks of basic training and we were getting ready to jump the, the following week. But we went to see a movie on base. And after the movie, we were walking back to the barracks and he stopped me in the field and he drew a line at my feet in the dirt. So this is where you are. And he took and I took several he took several spaces away. So this is where God is. And then he drew a, a, a line between the two and then a cross. Mm. And he said, the only way that you can get to God is through the cross of Christ. And I go, well, I'm a very visual learner. Um, that makes more sense to me. But the Lord didn't save me until nine years later. And that part of the story is really interesting because right before we got married, Karen was told by her doctor that she may not be able to have children. Um, six months into the marriage, we discovered she's three, three, three months pregnant. And <laughs> so much for the doctor's prediction. Um, but the reason why I share that is because when our oldest daughter, Ashley, was four years old, we had her in a 4K program at a Presbyterian church because I grew up attending a Presbyterian church, learned the Westminster Catechism. Um, did Bible drills and went to Sunday school every Sunday, but never came to faith in Christ. Mm. But God planted a lot of seeds during that time. Mm. Um, but the our daughter came home from preschool, and she asked me a question that I never thought I needed a, to be asked from the child that we never thought we would have. Mm. And she asked, who is Jesus, who all my friends keep talking about in preschool? Mm. And the moment she asked that question, the Holy Spirit punched me between the eyes. And in that moment, I knew I wasn't being the father nor the husband that I was supposed to be because my child didn't know Jesus. I didn't know Jesus. And Jesus was certainly not part of the marriage. And so at that time, we had already gotten out of the Navy. We were living in Columbia, South Carolina. And I did what any um, unspiritual leader would do. I'd just say, honey, go find us a church. <laughs> <laughs> so Karen goes to the nearest church uh, in our neighborhood. Uh, near our neighborhood, and it happened to be a Southern Baptist church in which we vowed never to go to a Baptist church because growing up in Savannah, Georgia, there was a fundamentalist church. And, you know, we heard from what we heard this Baptist church, um, women could not wear pants. Um, people would not were not allowed to watch movies. And so we said, man, we didn't want that kind of life. Why would we <laughs> want to do that? So that's why we steered away from Baptist um, churches. But shortly thereafter, after... 28 years old, my father had just died, 
And um, the Lord just as we as we sat under the preaching and we got involved in the Sunday school class, um, the Lord actually saved me during a men's retreat um, when uh, I, I vowed that I would never go to because if I were to go to this retreat, I'm only going to be around a bunch of men who end up crying. And so uh, I went after much angst and I end up sharing. I ended up crying. And in the midst of all that, the Lord saved me. And um, it's been a ride ever since. No, all you do is hang out with men who cry. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, well, thank you for sharing. That's awesome. How did you get into biblical counseling then? Yeah, so um, I'm a new believer. We're attending church now. We we moved to Greenville, South Carolina, because at that time I was working for Michelin Tires, and. Um, Early in, the, in our early 30s, my wife and I are the same age. She begins to remember um, a trauma in her teen years. And so we're attending a church and they had no form of counseling within the church. And so with um, the corporate uh, employee assistance program, we were able to get her into counseling with a lady who was Catholic. And during that time, as a new believer, I really began asking the question, how does Jesus make a difference? Uh, because as a new believer, I'm trying to put all these pieces together. My wife is trying to put the pieces of what had happened to her in the past. And so that became a burning question in my heart, which actually formed the first question of my call to ministry. But then the Lord opened my eyes to the brokenness in the church. And I was, I was, my, my next question was, uh, how does the church respond? What, what are we supposed to do as the body of Christ? And, and so those two questions, how does Jesus make a difference and what's the church doing about it became the basis for my call to ministry. That was in my early 30s. Um, it took me um, shortly thereafter, I began to sense a call to ministry. And it took about a year and a half to really discern God's calling upon my life. Um, but I was convinced that the Lord wanted me to figure those two questions out. And so that's what led us to Southern Seminary. We arrived in 1995 and uh, been on the journey ever since. That's a, <clears throat> I know that's a long journey too, and uh, I don't know if we can backtrack and you can fill us in. Let's backtrack and fill me in. Where, when did you and Karen get together? Because you mentioned her earlier in the journey, and we jumped over that part. We started dating at 16 years old. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, wow. attended the all-girls Catholic high school, and I attended the all-boys Catholic high school. And we started dating... At 16, dated for seven years before she uh, it forced me to, in today's term, to define the relationship. <laughs> we, we were actually at the Naval Academy at the ring dance. And she said, in the middle of the dance, she said, let's take a walk. I go, uh-oh, I think I know what this is about. <laughs> for a long time, and you need to give me a commitment. And so at that moment, I told her that I wanted to live with her for the rest of my life. And I wanted to have kids with her. She said, wait, 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 wait. I didn't want to know we going to the next step. <laughs> and so it's been a privilege because we've been able to experience the military together, corporate America together, and now ministry together. Yeah. And that's a rich background because obviously you you minister to a lot of different people and you've written some. We've talked to, to you on previous episodes about some of your books and I and I love your passions. Uh so can you share with with everybody 
I, I know you have a lot of different ideas and thoughts, but maybe some of the key passions that frame the work that you're doing now. Yeah, I think it all started during my PhD years uh, because my dissertation was seeking to prove that forgiveness flows from God's two great commandments. And so I would say that back then, the Lord allowed me to think much about the two love commands as the basis for uh, my ministry. So the first book that I wrote on church discipline actually used the framework of the two great commandments, but also God's story. And I didn't recognize that at the time until I looked back and looked at what I actually wrote. Um, so it was during those um, years, right after I graduated with my PhD, that I see that the Lord had laid a foundation uh, for, for our ministry based on God's story and the two great commandments. Um, so I would say that that would be the overarching foundation um, that I've been spending all the years seeking to understand. And out of that, seeking to answer the two questions I mentioned earlier, how does Jesus make a difference? Because as a pastor, people would say, creation, I don't even think about that because it's too too long ago. And, and what does that have to do with today? We understand the fall. Uh, redemption, I just want to know how Jesus makes a difference right here and now. I know I'm going to go to heaven, uh, but I want to know how he makes a difference today. And as we talked before, Curtis, you, you know that in my 16 and a half years as a pastor on staff, as a care pastor at Sojourn Midtown, um, we were we were always trying to understand and develop ministries where we would equip the saints for the work of ministry, uh, because I knew that based on the scriptures that God has called us to love one another and to care for one another, carry you know bear one another's burdens, and um, our 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 life's ministry and passion right now is to see how we can continue to grow that and improve that for the sake of the, the body of Christ. And you guys are helping people, helping pastors and churches now understand the disciple, God's story and discipleship is really a, or as a framework for discipleship and growth in, within the church. Can you talk about that briefly or flesh that out a little bit for those who might be interested in, in learning more or connecting with you on that? Yeah, I think I've been able to summarize the problem, Curtis and Lincoln, uh, in this way. I found that pastors, preachers, even professors at seminary, they teach and preach with confidence um, the gospel that saves, right? So uh, whether it be through the just the every day, every Sunday preaching or evangelism, um, every pastor and teacher has confidence that the gospel is powerful enough to save where I find a disconnect or a gap, I call it a gospel gap, is that the same pastors and teachers and even professors, they lack confidence when it comes to applying the gospel to everyday life. And um, when I was at seminary and as I've been a pastor um, at the church, but now as I travel across the country, I find the same phenomena. They are confident when they preach the gospel, but when it comes down to shepherding people, caring for people in the midst of the brokenness of life, they really lack confidence in how that gospel actually applies. Um, and so as a direct result of that gospel gap, there becomes a ministry gap. And what I mean by that, if, if, the, if it's not clear to the pastor 
how the gospel applies to, and I'm going to call it sanctification, because everything post-salvation is sanctification, right? Of how Christ is growing us more and more into his likeness. Uh, the main um, barrier, the main um, challenges to sanctification is the brokenness of life, the struggles that we deal with of living life in a fallen world. And, and so I see that as discipleship, um, but the ways that the churches have developed over the years, and maybe the way that we even teach at seminaries, um, dealing with the brokenness of life has been put into the counseling silo or category. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that maybe even the ways that pastors have been trained, they see dealing with life in a broken world as a uh, maybe um, an elective course, mm-hmm. as opposed to a mandatory understanding of what it means to be a shepherd within the church. Mm. And so when you, when pastors and leaders have that gospel gap from salvation to sanctification, uh, as, as we deal with the broken world, they lack the ability or confidence to equip the church, especially within small groups, because every church that we deal with, their mantra is we want our small groups to be the front line for discipleship care and and community. And so if the pastors themselves don't know how to apply the gospel to living life in a broken world, they're not going to be able to equip the small group leaders and church members of how to do the one another commands. And so that's what the problem I see out there. Um, And so I forgot your original question, but I'll stop there. (laughs) No, that's great. Um, It kind of this next question extends kind of what you're talking about and um, talking about that gap that there is or that care that the flock isn't getting either from the pastors or from um, the small groups. What do you and your ministry, like what should that care look like? What care does the church need? Just go into that. Yeah. And I'll go ahead and explain, um, answer your question, Lincoln. Um, by looking at the issues that we see. And you can see how this all ties in. Um, Pastors in general, they can feel uncomfortable asking about a person's story uh, because they don't know what they might hear. And when they, if they hear hard and troubling things of a person's story, they may not feel comfortable how to respond to that. And so I call the, one of the contributing issues to the gospel and ministry gap is a story gap. They don't know how the, the gospel story that they preach addresses the broken stories of, of our lives, right? Um, the next thing is what I call the heart gap. More and more pastors, especially within the biblical counseling influence, they're learning how to understand the struggles of people's hearts, mm-hmm. right? Um, however, I think with the, with the popularity of um, lowly and gentle, um, why that was a vastly popular book is because it was one of the few books out there that focused on the heart of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we see what I call a heart gap between the, the struggles that we experience in our hearts with the heart of God and, and how he makes a difference, primarily through the affections of the heart, um, because one of the pillar passages that our ministry is built on is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. And Paul writes, well, I am so compelled or controlled by the love of Christ that I no longer live for myself, but I live for him who died for me and was raised again from the dead. And so people not only have, a, you know, it's not uncommon for, for people within churches to, to understand what's going on in their hearts. 
they, they don't have that awareness or maybe able to understand it, but they also lack an understanding of God's heart and how, how his heart is for helping to restore the hearts and souls of people within the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the next gap is what I call the Jesus gap. And when people are struggling, given their story, maybe as you have written about Curtis, about they have traumatic experience in their story, their souls have been impacted as a direct result. And then people will say, this is what I need. This is what I want in the midst of my, my sorrow and my shame and my struggles. And they, they want relief. They want peace, et cetera. Um, but when they come to you, when they came to me as a pastor and I would start to talk to them about Jesus and what Jesus has to offer and what Jesus thinks they need, um, they would, the most saddening response that I would hear as a pastor is, pastor, you're just telling me spiritual stuff. I need some practical stuff. Mm. And granted, we need practical parts, right, for ministry, but the power and the substance of what we have to offer in the gospel is Jesus. And so I call that the Jesus gap, where people don't see how Jesus really makes a difference in their brokenness and their pain and their sorrows. Mm. So those are the issues that we address through God's story um, and through um, helping people to live in God's story through, and here's the part that I haven't spoken about yet, through abiding in Christ. In community, because when people struggle, they can isolate, they can withdraw, and they might be too shameful to share what's going on in their lives. But God has given us the church, his people, in order to encourage and to um, love and help one another. And so I see all of that as discipleship. That's what we should be equipping and in developing our discipleship the disciples to do and um, one of the sayings that i have is that when we disciple people we should actually be caring for them and when we care for people we should be discipling them yeah absolutely and your i mean your own testimony is kind of a nutshell of that difference where somebody's story and their life and what they need and it goes back to that first commandment that you said love the lord your god with all your heart all your soul and all your strength and you grew up in the Presbyterian church, got catechized. You had all the knowledge. But as James tells us, the demons have all the knowledge mm-hmm. too, right? I mean, they have great theology, but they're not in, their hearts are not inclined mm-hmm. for. They don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They don't want to abide with Christ. And it is so much more. Our whole heart is more than just what we know. Um, and it's so important for us as as biblical counselors, as pastors, as friends, as parents, as whatever, to help people understand the the whole person nature of a relationship with Christ. So, so can you share some examples, ideas, thoughts about how abiding in Christ actually counteracts the fall in, in a lot of those, as we, we know, it's the whole person, it's the whole life, it's the whole experience, um, relationships, everything. But I want to hear from you some of the ways that abiding in Christ counteracts the fall? Yeah, first of all, you know, we can look at, for instance, Psalm 73, where the the person of God is looking all around him and seeing how the wicked are mm-hmm. prospering yep. and beginning to question, am I keeping my hands and my heart pure is in, in vain? Um, and when we get focused just on our reality, uh, what I call that is we live life below the clouds. 
And we only think that our reality is, is the tangible um, temporal realities that we can see, taste, touch, and hear. But we forget that there's a bigger reality. And so one of the ways in which abiding in Christ helps to counteract the impact of the fall is that it's when in Psalm 73, but he said, but when I came into the presence mm-hmm. of the Lord, he helped me to see what's really happening. Mm-hmm. And so abiding in Christ through the power of the of power of God through his spirit and his word, but also the way that God created us um, is that we actually are reminded that we live in a bigger, um, bigger reality and that God is real and he's near. Um, but but also when we abide in Christ, when we receive his word, when we pray his word and we seek to live his word by faith, uh, we begin to experience God himself. And a, a quick a, a quick point is that every person in the church can tell you with excruciating details how stress impacts them, mm. body and soul. Right. Yeah. Yep. Even with trauma, as you as you've written about, they can tell you how. Um, how it's impacted their souls and actually act, act, impacted their body as well. But how often do you hear people within the church talking about how Christ experiencing his presence and his peace and his love, how it impacts their body and soul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so abiding in Christ allows a person through that connection with God, through the word and the spirit allows them to encounter and experience the, the 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 person and the realities of redemption of Christ in the midst of a fallen world. And what I encourage people to consider is, do you think that God created us just to merely experience the fall? Or do you think that he's created us to experience Jesus and his redemptive realities, like his presence, his power, and his mercy and love, equal to or more than the fall? Mm. And so that's where abiding in Christ makes Christ come alive, because too often when we don't, when our affections are not moved by by Christ and his word and his presence, we can we can know about God in our heads, but we don't experience it in our hearts. And so therefore we can we can um, we can be convinced by the lies of the enemy and even the flesh that Christ is is real, but he's not near to me. And how often do you hear yourself or other Christians say that I'm just kind of numb, I'm just kind of dry, spiritually dry. And when we're like that, when we're spiritually dry and we don't experience anything from our God, um, then the fall will outweigh uh, Christ himself. Mm. No, that's That's why body in Christ is so helpful to counteract um, the way that the fall has impacted us. Well, I mean, reversing the fall, you go from walking, Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God to being distant and separate from him. But if you look at the, when we see the language of walking with, it's all throughout the New Testament, you know, Ephesians, First uh, John, we are called to walk, obviously, and that's, that can be talking about the way in which we exist in this world, but it is also walking with God as he is in the, you know, being with Jesus. Um, so no, thanks, thanks for that. That was really great. Lakin, did you have you sound yeah, like you I had did. a question? I there. did have something. Um, so you, that would be kind of what you just talked about was that Jesus gap where they may know, but they don't experience it in their whole heart. So if someone um, or if a pastor is listening um, or someone who is a biblical counselor or just wanting to give care, if there is the Jesus gap, the heart gap, um, or the story gap. 
where would you direct them? What would you say if someone's realizing, oh, we have these gaps either in my life as a friend, as a discipler, as a pastor? How would you point them? Where would you point them? What would you tell them? Yeah, thanks, Lincoln. Um, we offer cohorts that uh, we use to equip pastors. Um, if the pastors are still trying to understand the discipleship frameworks that we offer, they're still trying to vet us. Uh, we invite them into an abide cohort that, that's focused on equipping pastors with the vision and the substance of what we just talked about in a brief way and showing them how all of addressing these gaps really make a difference in their ministries. Once they're convinced of that, then we encourage them to take the next step of a team cohort where they would invite us in to train um, their select team of leaders pastors, all their pastors and wives, as well as all their staff leaders, so that they can, so that their ministry team will have the same language and framework and also experience so that they can start to align their ministries um, with a singular um, focus of abiding in Christ as we, in order to live in God's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fortunately, we have a few churches who are at various points along the road, but we have a church um, in Winston-Salem called Salem Chapel. Um, they've been um, implementing the framework for the past three years from the pulpit to the preschool. And their their singular focus is teaching their people how to abide in the love of Christ and also teaching them how to teach others how to do the same, mm. which I think is the two great commandments. Yeah. And um, and so they said that God is changing their culture, ministry is multiplying, and their leadership bench is growing because more and more people are understanding how to do the basics of ministry um, in a reproducible way. Mm. Well, we're about out of time, Robert. It's been a delight, as always, to talk with you. So I just want to leave off with the question of where do you derive the greatest joy in counseling? My greatest joy was an unexpected joy, and that is equipping other people. Uh, When I see the light bulbs come on, when I see the connections, when I see people ministering by faith and they're seeing God at work, I have the greatest joy because it gets them excited. It gets them uh, convinced that, hey, God can use me in this way. And they move from doing like a connect ministry where they're handing out bulletins or, or cleaning up to actual real um, in-depth gospel ministry. And for me, it's answering the original calling of helping people, multiplying the, the, the ministry of helping people to see how Jesus makes a difference and helping the church to do something about it in a broken world. Yeah. Well, that's really great. Well, thank you so much for being with us on 1514 today, Robert. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And special thanks to our team who helped make this podcast possible. My assistant, Rebecca Mullins, helps coordinate these interviews. And our podcast engineer, Caleb Lau, does a great job editing and putting everything together. We look forward to you joining us next time.